Alright, so we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2. Most of the, I believe, well, rather all of the scriptures are going to be on the screen here. And so, as we start looking at this chapter, I want us to just kind of remember kind of the context of what uh, was going on uh, with Paul and others uh, during this time which uh, this letter was written. Uh, there's pretty much a general consensus that this was written while he was most likely in Rome. We see that he's in prison at this time. We see that in chapter 4. But we see the distance here between Rome and Colossae. If you kind of can, you probably can barely see that, but it's around modern day Turkey. It's close to Ephesus, also close to Laodicea as well. And what you see here is that there is. Uh, I guess that's probably a, a common travel route here from Rome to Colossae, but it says it's 1,180 miles. And uh, I just find that to be interesting. If you look, if you were walking that, you know, if you walk 20 miles a day, that's two months of walking to get to Rome to Colossae. Of course, I don't know how long it would take them to do this by ship. And, you know, you think about that today, I don't know. Maybe that's here to the far side of Texas. I don't know if 1,200 miles will get you outside of Texas if you were going west. If you're going north, I mean, that would get you pretty close to Canada. And, you know, we've seen in Chapter 1, we see this also sporadically throughout uh, this letter that Paul hasn't actually seen these individuals. He hasn't met them. And yet we see the concern that he has uh, for them and you think about, I don't even know anybody in Canada. I definitely don't know any brethren in Canada, or at least close to that. And so we can kind of think about, wow, that's pretty, that's something there. Uh, that he's, and, and dealing with what he's dealing with during that time as well, being in prison. And yet he felt it necessary to write this letter to these brethren, which he has not seen before. Now, this is not a very good resolution picture, but I was looking, trying to find something, kind of piece together, at least kind of a timeline or kind of a time period uh, that Paul writ, wrote this letter, and really pay attention to really these last three. Uh, it says, and I don't know exactly if these dates are correct, obviously, but Paul's under house arrest around 62 A.D. in Rome, which... Uh, it's said to be probably around the same time that he wrote this letter to the Colossians. And then somewhere around 64 and 67 A.D., this was when Paul was actually killed. And so this is towards the end of his life. And many of the of his letters were written during this time period as well. I think uh, I think Ephesians uh, was as well. We do know like Second Timothy was written towards the end of his life uh, too. But he's already done quite a bit of work. And this is towards the end of his life uh, when he's writing uh, this letter. And so going into the text, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verses 1 through 3, it says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as I have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to the all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to a knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As I was looking at this, I had to go back and because and look 
uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 11. I had to do a search because I couldn't remember where it was at. But Paul talks about his daily concern for all the churches. And you see that here uh, with Paul. He says, what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. Remember, if you looked at the map, there's very short distance between Colossae and Laodicea. And so there's a great concern for, for them. And we see here, as far as many does not see my face in the flesh again, he hasn't seen these individuals. But notice what he wants for them. He wants their hearts to be encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in love and attaining to the full assurance of understanding. He wants them, uh, and we see uh, this idea of us uh, being a body. We talked about that in, in the, the class earlier, that the individuals ought to have their brethren, ought to have the same care concern uh, for one another. We ought to want what's best for one another, even if those things may, it may be uncomfortable um, in certain situations. And so we're wanting what's best for, for them. And also, see how that is connected to this idea of being encouraged as well. And you think about, I think about just interaction with other brethren, how encouraging that is. Uh, when, you know, there may be certain situations where we may be doing something that it may, we're just kind of doing it and it seems like nobody's paying attention and it's, you know, we can get discouraged by that and just with one person saying something, see how great of an encouragement that may be. Realize that people are paying attention and how great that can be. But also this encouragement by the hope and, and the faith that we have as well. And so, we can be encouraged, we're being knit together in love, and he's also one of them attained to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Uh, seems, and, and, of course, a lot of you know Christians, different denominations, they talk about this idea of assurance, and it seems as though a lot of times there's, when people talk about the assurance, it's polar opposites, either this, this assurance that's, well, I just feel like I'm saved, it's based on some type of emotion or what I feel. And then there's some that just say, well, I, I just don't know. I, well, I hope I'm going to heaven, but I, I'm not really sure. And Paul really throws that out of the water here. He says that we can't attain to the riches of the full assurance. But what is this assurance based on? It's based on understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. That through us knowing his word, attaining that knowledge... We can line ourselves up, we can, we can examine ourselves, put ourselves up against, next to the Word, and we can know whether we are right or not with God. And so we can know uh, that we can have assurance. This is not just for people that are like Paul or maybe some of the apostles. It's not just for them. I remember it was several months ago I was reading some letter, and somebody took a survey, I think, you know, some Bible class about... Um, whether or not somebody thought they were going to heaven or not. And it was a a lot of individuals that were in that Bible class said that they weren't sure or they actually thought they weren't going to heaven. And these were Christians that were saying this. And I just, you know, if you don't think you're going to heaven, there, there's something that needs to change right then and there. You know, why, why are you taking the survey? There's some, something that has to change if you actually think that you're not going to go to heaven. And there's a lot of people that just don't have this assurance. And Paul is saying we can 
have this assurance. But it's based on knowledge. It's based in understanding. And notice the Father and the Christ, what do they have? It says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we'll go in later into this chapter see that they're dealing with there's some problems, there's some different teachings that's being spread that, that Paul deals with. But yet we see here that through the Father, through the Christ, if we want wisdom and we want knowledge, that's who we go to. We don't go to some person that's deemed to have some type of special knowledge. Uh, you think about the Gnostics, you think about all these other individuals, think about maybe some of the Jewish leaders you don't have to go through them. They don't have what you need. What you need only comes through the Father and the Christ. And that would be great comfort for us. That there is, there's a lot of wisdom and knowledge to be gained. And it's, and it's, and it's time consuming and, and, and can be hard and difficult to receive that wisdom and knowledge. But yet we know the source. And that's the only source that we need for wisdom and knowledge. Verses 4 through 7 it says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing this year your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so... He's saying these things. We see that there's there's a possibility that they could be deceived. He don't really see where they're actually currently are being deceived, but he is warning them. And he says, even though I'm not here, even though I'm absent in the flesh, I'm with you in spirit. He's rejoicing. He's seeing the good things that they're doing. He's seeing their order and steadfastness in their faith. There's a lot of things going on that's good here, but he says, you continue uh, in that, remember in Revelations two, I believe it's the Church of Ephesus that Paul, uh, Paul, uh, the 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 church says that they have uh, the, the angel says that they have left their first love, and here he's saying, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so you receive them, you're holding fast to it. Assume that you have received this zealously, you continue in it, you continue to walk in Him, just as you have done. From the very beginning, there's no slowing down. There's no retirement plan uh, for the Christian. They are to continue as hard as they can every day uh, and, and continuing to walk in Christ. He says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That they have, what does the gospel give to us? It gives us liberty. It gives us freedom from sin. This is not ought to be viewed as some type of just burden. That's a very hard load for us to hold on to, and not it's not meant to drag us down. We ought to be thankful uh, of the things that we've had, and we ought to be rejoicing uh, that we have been uh, freed from this sin, uh, that we can be counted partakers of this inheritance, and yet. We see uh, Paul's urgency here uh, to make sure that they're not being deceived, that they're continuing to hold fast to Christ and Christ in him only. Verses 8 through 10, it says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, 
according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Right? Paul here, he talks, he's talking about this idea of philosophy and empty deceit. And at the end of the day, what is this? These are all traditions of men. These all come from the mind of men. They're according, as he puts it, to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. So we see this disconnect here. There can be no mixing with these philosophies or these different ideas and the teachings of Christ. And notice what it says about Christ. This is pretty interesting here. He says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And and I think there's, you know, we think about that when people think about God the Father, God the Son, that there are some that will say that, you know, maybe that, that Christ uh, wasn't God, or there's some idea that maybe he was a little bit less than God. But notice what Paul says. He said, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He was God in the flesh. And so, if we wanted to see God, well, we could we could see that in Christ. There's no distinctions. There's, there's no uh, differences between Christ and God the Father. We see that in Philippians 2 as well, that he thought not robbery to be equal with God. And so we see that, and again, we see the supremacy of Christ over all these other teachings or philosophies or these traditions of men. And he makes it doubly clear by saying that you are complete in him. You're complete in Christ. And so we see it just over and over and over again. Christ is all that you need. There's nothing else uh, that we need. He's the head. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. There's no other God that you need to look to. There's no other idol. There's nothing else. There's no other philosophies that we need to look to in order to be complete. We're only complete and fully complete in him. Verses 11 through 15. It says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And beginning in, in verse 11, this, this is probably... You know, an indication that those in Colossia, they were probably dealing with some issues, maybe with some Jewish teachers. We know that's, that that was a continued problem throughout the New Testament. This idea in Acts chapter 15 that one must be circumcised in order to, in order to be saved. But here Paul is saying to those in Colossae, well, you were circumcised. This is not physical circumcision not this is made without hands but you've already received uh, this circumcision how you are you what is this is putting off 
of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. And so we see what this circumcision is, that it's putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, and it happens when you are buried with him in, in baptism. Interesting enough, when you think about circumcision, uh, you think about you know you think about Abraham. What did it mean for him? It was a seal of the righteousness which he had. It was a sign of the covenant uh, for him. Also, you read in Genesis that the males who were not circumcised were to be cut off. Uh, they, they were going to be cut off from their peoples there. So it was a requirement uh, for them. We also see it be required for the Jews. We obviously see that in the New Testament they thought highly, very highly, to the point where, again, the New, New Testament Christians, were it was necessary for them in order for them to be saved. So it was a seal, it was a sign, it's also required uh, for them. And, and it's the same thing for us that we see that if we're going to be putting off this body of the sins of the flesh, we have to receive the circumcision that takes place in baptism. We see that in Romans 6 as well. We died with him in baptism. We're raised to walk in newness of life. And we see that here as well. And so, just like what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, that this is not, our salvation is not by the things that we have done or by any works that we have done, it's by faith, and here Paul says it's by faith in the working, uh, in the working of God. All right, that when we think about circumcision, was it the physical act of circumcision that really meant anything? No, there's something more going on here, and it's the same thing here with baptism. And so we're raised with Him. We're raised. We're raised. Raised with Him walk in newness of life just like Christ was raised from the dead. And just like in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about their former life. This is who you were before. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But you now have been made alive to him, alive with him. You have been forgiven of your trespasses. And you've had, the, as Paul puts it, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, which it, Obviously, I think this is the Jewish law. These laws that were uh, that 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 they had to follow, that they couldn't keep. Now these things have been wiped away. They've been taken out of the way, having nailed those things to the cross. So there's no need to follow them any anymore. They are dead. They're put away. They are obsolete, as the Hebrew writer puts it. And so, therefore, there's no need for any physical circumcision or any other type of law keeping because those things have been done away with and it says also that he has disarmed principalities and power he's made a public spectacle of them triumphing them over them in it triumphed over the you know you think about the jewish leaders that system uh i think about the roman government and that whole uh idea of pagan worship there that there was nothing that could keep uh the, the spread of the gospel down. Uh, they couldn't uh, stop it. And so it says here he's made a spectacle of them. He's triumphed over them. Uh, the strongest empire, you know, I, you know, at least during that time, probably in, in, in the world, the Roman Empire of that time, couldn't put a stop to this. And he triumphed all over all of them. 
Verses 16 through 19, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. All right, so this handwriting, this this law has been put away. It's been nailed to the cross. Now what? Let no one judge you in food or in drink, a festival, new moon, or Sabbath. Know that those are uh, uh, significant days uh, in the Jewish law. And what does he say they are? He says those things are a shadow of the things to come. The book of Hebrews says that they are copies of the true. We, you know, the worship, the you know, the sacrifice. All those were copies of the true. The point is to something else, and it was all pointing here to Christ. That all these festivals, all these special days, they were pointing us to something. Now the true has come. That being Christ. Therefore, again, no need to follow those old things now that the substance or the true is now here. And so he says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking the light of false humility and worship of angels. Not quite sure what this idea of worship of angels are. Couldn't really find much information on that. But apparently this was going on. Uh, Apparently this was a problem in that area. And he says, don't be deceived by them. They're, they're taking the light in this, but also in this false humility, as he puts it. Uh, we'll look at, I believe it's the next slide, uh, some teachings that were in that area that kind of had uh, this idea of humility or being extremely humble and, and really it's false humility, as uh, the letter puts it. And so, but those things would cheat them out of their reward if they would follow them. And these individuals says that they're intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. They're just, you know, they're just doing things that they don't really know about. It's just, you know, really they, they think that they know something. They think that they're enlightened. But in reality, they don't know anything. That they're just coming up with stuff that makes no sense and they're puffed up as Paul puts it and what here is the problem they're puffed up by their fleshly mind but they're not holding fast to the head they're not holding fast to Christ and if we or if those in Colossae don't hold fast to the head they might be deceived by these things uh, and those things which can cheat them out of their reward and so here the head, the head being Christ, it says, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So the church grows. We think about Ephesians 4, the different offices, uh, and how uh, those different offices help uh, the church, uh, even the individuals as well. They all have a part to play in the church and how it all causes increase in growth uh, within the body, and this is the same idea uh, again that Paul is talking about the Christ being the head and the body, the, the individuals in the church being these joints and ligaments that continue to grow just like a human body uh, grows as well. Verses 20 through 
and says, Therefore, uh, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you, do you subject yourself to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. All right, so you've died with Christ. You died from the basic principles of the world. You're no longer subject to them, but you continue to do so. Why would you do such a thing? Why do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. This was very interesting to me because when I started looking, I, I was curious because I kind of wanted to know, was there, you know what, if there was any outside evidence of what may have been going on in that area as to why Paul is mentioning this stuff. And, of course... This idea of do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Of course, you think about the, the Jewish influences again. But it seems as though that in that area there was a problem with what's called asceticism. I, I, may, not have, I may not be saying that right. But, or asceticism or whatever it may be. But it was this idea of basically that if you punish or, or torment your body that it will make you greater it will, it will help you know you become more spiritual uh, if you punish your bodies in some sort of way and so some of this may be um, you know people wouldn't eat meat uh, they would only eat vegetables also uh, you know they would you know literally torment uh, themselves in strange ways and this may be some reference to that as well. This idea of, of these regulations that really don't make any sense, they're not based in Christ, or based in the minds of men, that it may make sense, it may sound good, but again, as Paul puts it, these are the commandments and the doctrines of men. There's no need, and you should not be following these ideas. And you think about that, you think about, well, I'm going to only eat certain foods, you know, maybe I'm going to starve myself for however long a time, uh, maybe I'm going to, you know, hurt myself in some way, and what you see here is that this idea of false humility there, that I'm humbling myself, I'm making myself seem very lowly, and that can, when we think about what the Bible says in the New Testament says about being humble, you know, doing all those things, we can see where it's probably kind of easy to be kind of tripped up by these ideas and that it may be wise. Maybe they would say, well, I'm not, got, I'm not getting caught up in the material things of this world by doing this to my body. And there, again... It may seem wise. It may seem humble. It may seem like these are good individuals. But it's self-imposed religion. All right? This has, again, this is outside of Christ. This did not come from Christ. And again, don't be caught up in it. The false humility, neglect of the body. 
but are of no value against the the indulgence of the flesh. All those things, if you're still sinning, what good is that going to do? If you if you if you punish your bodies, if you if you if you only eat certain foods, and you're still sinning, whatever it may be, it does you absolutely no good. And so Paul here again is urging these individuals: don't get caught up in this. Only hold to Christ and Christ and Him only. And so that's the end of the chapter. I know we kind of moved through that kind of quickly. But we see over and over again, and especially going back to the 9 o'clock class, just over and over again, Paul speaking of the supremacy of Christ, uh, that nothing else can compare and make it doubly clear that uh, he was not just some man or he was not some prophet or whatever it may be. He was God in the flesh. He, in him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in him is... He has all authority and power. And so he also has the power to you know, uh, either save us. And God also has the power to condemn us as well. And only through Christ can we have uh, the hope of salvation. And so if there's anyone here who needs that salvation, we'd certainly like to discuss those things with you, uh, help you, help you receive that baptism, that circumcision that, that cuts off the sin of the flesh, and you can be raised in newness of life. And if those are here, they're Christians already, and you may need the prayers of the saints. Maybe you're falling into some sin that you may need to confess and need prayers uh, for. <laughs> we certainly like to help you in, in any way that we can uh, now as we stand and as we sing. Will you come? I